Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada. Today we continue our series, The Gospel Alternative to the Cultures of Men, with a message entitled, Excommunication and the Loving Church. Let's join Dr. Neufeld as we turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 to 5. Excommunication really is a nasty word, wouldn't you say? It reminds us of the Salem witch trials and the Spanish Inquisition and a hundred lesser examples of churches banning people and the wounds that have come to hurt and alienate people because of it. I remember one woman telling me of her father who had Huntington's chorea, which is a horrible neurological disease, because the church didn't know he had it. And because he started to say things that were, well, crazy and outright heretical, they excommunicated him, only to discover later that he had a disease that was affecting his mind. A great deal of work needed to be done with that family to ever trust the church again. Perhaps you have a story of excommunication, or, or you know someone who does, and the entire idea of it is distasteful and hurtful. Perhaps you think it occurs because people are more concerned about being right than about being loving. And yet the Bible does have examples of it being done, and it even teaches us to do it in some situations. But there's another side to the excommunication story. I would venture to say that the average churchgoer in this country today has never witnessed a single excommunication in their lifetime. Indeed, the practice of it has fallen off so that where it occurs, it seems strange and certainly unusual. Many people assume it just is a part of an archaic, past, dark chapter in the life of the church, and they're only too glad to have done away with it. Now, if you don't know what it is, excommunication is the removing or revoking of someone's membership from within that church. Furthermore, because of this action, the one who is removed from membership is no longer permitted to participate in any of the church meetings in particular. They are forbidden from participation in communion, which is the Lord's table. That's exactly what's being described in 1 Corinthians 5, 1-5. Let me read it. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. You're arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. You know, in our last broadcast, we discussed the nature of the sin that is here being described. A man was involved in a sexual relationship with his stepmother. Very likely, the stepmother is not a believer and not a member of the church, but the stepson was. Also, it seems probable that this relationship deeply impacted the man's father, and it was an event well reported not only within the church, but also among the watching pagan community. What follows is the Bible's instruction as to what to do. Notice again the latter part of verse 2. Are you not rather to mourn? See, instead of arrogantly ignoring it or even feeling good about the diversity of opinion on matters like this, the church should have become overwhelmed with grief. Now, if you're biblical, 
you know that people make choices that are eternal choices. That's what Deuteronomy 30 verse 15 teaches, where Moses said, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. Do you see the nature of our choices? Good and life are one package. Evil and death are the other package. There are consequences to our decisions. Those consequences are eternal. I remember spending a day with a brother who was going to leave his wife for another woman. I pleaded with him to repent. I offered to walk with him through his temptations. I volunteered to make all the contacts with the other woman, always putting myself between them. I said I would do anything. He simply turned me down. I, to this day, grieve over that. See, what does grieving over someone else's sin accomplish? It does at least three things. First of all, it helps us to see how evil sin is. Gossiping over sin does the exact opposite. It makes us feel superior. It's unloving and brutal. Grieving focuses our attention on what has been lost. And in this case, what has been lost is a man's walk in holiness, and it floods our soul with sorrow. Secondly, grieving over sin warns us to beware, for we come to realize how easily any person falls into sin. And thirdly, grieving over sin helps us understand that sin is never a private matter. It's never only between us and God. It impacts many others. Think about the married man who commits adultery. He says, it's between me and that woman. Well, no, it's not. It's also about your wife. It's about your children. It's about your church. It's about the reputation of Christ in the community. It's about a young person who's struggling with his or her own temptation and about an example that you lay down for him. It's about more things than you know. It's sobering. Grieving over sin helps us to understand what happens when we sin and of the consequences of that sin. Grieving can be an act of love both for the sinner and for those impacted by the sin. A faithful church grieves over sin. Secondly, a faithful church will excommunicate someone when it's necessary. See, I say if necessary because the faithful Christian church is never looking to throw people out. But they might do so when they desperately don't want to do so if that individual refuses to grieve because of his or her own sin. It's as if we're forced to bring grief to a person who will not grieve on their own. What every faithful church wants is to restore the individual who's sinning. And here's the key. A faithful church cannot ignore the individual who is sinning. See, to do so would be to do two unacceptable things. First, it would indicate that it does not want to take the demands of holiness seriously. And second, it would indicate that a local church would allow someone to imperil their own soul without even intervening. But that still doesn't answer the question that's raised by our text. Verse 3, Paul says, and I quote, For though absent in body, I'm present in spirit, and as if I were present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. See, at first reading, we might think that what Paul has in mind here is that he's prepared to excommunicate an individual without even allowing a fair hearing. Shouldn't the church be prepared to let that man share his perspective on what's going on before rushing to judgment? Isn't this like the person ready to shoot first and then ask questions later? You know, but context is everything. Please remember that the actual action was not in question. 
This is not a reported case of a man sleeping with his stepmother and so dishonoring his father and his God. No, no. The actions were not in question. Furthermore, the man must have, at some point in time, been spoken to. You know, it's hard to know whether the church had followed the pattern in Matthew 18, 15 to 20, where Jesus outlined the process of excommunication for the local church. You know, in Matthew 18, Jesus gives a three-step process. First, the one who is sinned against must take the initiative. And then second, another must be taken along. And then third, the matter must be taken to the church. But in truth, this teaching might not have exactly applied to this situation. For one, we don't know if the man's father was in the church, and even if he was. The issue before the Corinthian church far exceeded a personal dispute between a father and a son. So let's be absolutely clear. The principle that is laid before us in this text teaches that if anyone is involved in a sexual relationship outside of marriage and refuses to repent, they are to be removed from the local church. And in the next chapter, in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18, Paul will say, flee sexual immorality. And then he's going to make the point that sexual immorality, that is, having a sexual relationship with someone outside of marriage, is a unique category, a kind of sins that must be treated with great seriousness. Now, I won't go into explaining why that's so. We're going to deal with that when we come to chapter 6. But for now, let's notice that Paul is very clear that we are not to tolerate an easy acceptance of any sexual act outside of a lifetime commitment in marriage between one man and one woman. That would have been shocking to Corinthian culture, but it's not shocking to biblical teaching. And so it does absolutely no good to say, look, we all have our own sins. I mean, one person may struggle with overeating and another with lust and a a third with greed and gossiping, and we all sin. So who are we to judge that person? And Paul is saying here that he has already judged that person. That's because in the case of sex outside of marriage, where a person is unwilling to repent and unwilling to change and submit to church discipline, that person must be excommunicated. That's why Paul says, I don't have to be there. I know clearly that in such a case, judgment is already pronounced and a faithful church will comply. Sexual sin. Is there really such a thing in the minds of those in the culture of this world? Well, according to the Bible, there is. And we as the church ought to stand out as different. And one way we do that is how we respond both personally and as a church community. We'll look at this further when Dr. Neufeld returns. Once in a while, we're overwhelmed by the generosity of those who share our heart for Bible teaching and sharing the good news. This is one of those times. Just recently, we received a pledge from a group of ministry friends committed to matching dollar for dollar your donations up to $75,000. I can't express enough appreciation for the potential impact of this pledge for the ministry. So could I ask you to thoughtfully consider offering a financial gift today? Your gift will then be matched by the $75,000 pledge that's been made. Now that's a great ministry investment. 50 becomes 100, 500 becomes 1,000, 1,000 becomes 2,000, you get the idea. Join us in making this match pledge of $75,000 become $150,000 in support of the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. 
Call us with your gift today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. I wonder if you've ever watched the play or seen the movie Fiddler on the Roof. It's about a man named Tevye. He's a Jewish man. He lives in rural Russia with his family. It's a Jewish village just at the beginning of the communist revolution. Tevye loves his traditions. But as the movie goes on, we can see that his traditions and his culture were changing. This is exemplified in the life of his three daughters and in their marriages. The first daughter wants to get married to a poor tailor, whereas Tevye wants her to marry a wealthy older man. He's the village butcher. And so the daughter and the tailor ask the father for permission to marry, but they also tell him that they've already made a pledge to each other. They've agreed to marry each other. Well, that was scandalous because no Jew would allow that. Fathers arranged the marriages for their daughters. But Tevye bends and, and, and allows for it. He's shaken by the experience, but he loves his daughter more than his traditions. But he's left uncomfortable. His tradition is being changed, and he doesn't like it. The second daughter doesn't even ask for permission, and that hurts terribly, but he allows that as well, for the young man is a Jew and knows the Scripture. Again, his tradition is changing, but he finds it hard to bear, but his love for his daughters wins overall. But the third daughter marries a communist and an atheist, and the father breaks all relationship with that daughter. He won't speak to her. He won't let her into his house. He informs her that she is not his daughter. He doesn't know her. She begs him to be allowed back into the family, but his heart is against her, even while his heart is breaking. He says if he allows this to pass, it will break him, for to accept this thing will make him no longer a Jew. He will painfully give away all his traditions, but he will never turn his back on his God and on the scriptures. And in fact, that's what we say. If we allow certain kinds of sins to go unchallenged, we will break all Christian meaning and we will no longer be a Christian church. Such is the nature of sexual sin. God forbids it and so do we. We still love the unrepentant brother, but we will not break the Christian church for the sake of an easy acceptance of sin. Sometimes how we handle our understanding of sex is a test as to whether we will insist on being the people of God or making up our own culture as we go along. So let's see what excommunication does and means. There are three things that Paul emphasizes in this text. First, excommunication is an action that when it is taken must be done not as a reaction or as a means of getting our own way, but rather, if it is done, must be done under the authority of Jesus. Now, that's vital. Look again at verse 4. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of Jesus. Now, note the wording. When you are assembled. In Matthew 18, 17, Jesus says, tell it to the church. See, all excommunication is intended in Scripture to be public and transparent. Nothing is done by a few elders or pastors with no one else there. The church is to be told of the action and the reason for the action. See, in this case, it would have gone something like this. At a public gathering of the church in Corinth, one of the leaders would have named the man sleeping with his father's wife. 
would have said that he refuses to repent and would have announced that because of this, this man was no longer permitted to attend any of the services of the Christian church. Everyone present would have understood. Then Paul adds in his instruction, with my spirit present. The meaning here is that the members of the church would be told that the Apostle Paul himself was approving of this action. Now, that's very important. Remember, the apostles played a unique and unrepeatable role in the church. They were given the authority to speak on behalf of Jesus. No human being can do that today. But we do have the Bible, which is a record of the teachings of the apostles. And so from that, we can see that modern-day leaders of a local church should be called upon to cite the biblical passages that relate directly to the action that's being taken. And then Paul says, with the power of the Lord Jesus, and again, we are forced to go back to Jesus' teaching in Matthew 18, verse 18. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. See, this action is sacred and binding, in which heaven itself and Jesus himself is in full agreement. Imagine, if you will, how sober this moment must have been for the Corinthian church. Everyone suddenly recognized that the culture of Jesus is very different from the culture of Corinth. Now, remember, I said that there are three things that we needed to notice. First, that excommunication is an action taken under the authority of Jesus. Now, second, the result of excommunication is that it releases the person being excommunicated into the domain of Satan. Pay attention to the first part of verse 5. You are to deliver this man to Satan. Now, this sounds like strange language to us, but in fact, it is language that is found in the New Testament. Listen, for instance, to 1 Timothy chapter 1, 19-20. There Paul writes, By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. The point being that removal from the body of believers, or to put the matter plainly, excommunication removes someone from Christ's loving care into the hands of the evil one. Let me explain it this way. Satan says the Bible is the ruler of this world. So when we excommunicate someone, we are in effect thrusting them out of the church and throwing them back into the world without any care and support and teaching and nurturing of the Christian community. Let me illustrate this. A number of years ago, a member of the church that I was pastoring had gone to San Francisco to be with his family. And while there, unexpectedly, there was a death in that family. Well, that man's small group together banded together, bought plane tickets, went to the funeral, and wept alongside of that family. They, they provided food, they, they prayed for that individual, and they were simply there to say that they cared. Now, why did they do that? Well, simple. When one member suffers, we all suffer. Church is about a faithful verse-by-verse -verse exposition of Scripture. It's about praying together. It's about watching over each other's lives to make sure that we're encouraged and believing in the promises of God and remaining faithful together. You take that away forcibly, and that individual is immediately launched into the destructive realm of the evil one. That's exactly what happens at excommunication. Now, one more point from this text. As horrible as excommunication is, it is done with the hope of restoration. But when you have been removed from the relationship of God's people, you only exist in the realm of the evil one. 
Now you live not under the gracious and forgiving hand of Christ, but under the ungracious and unforgiving hand of Satan who wants to destroy your soul. It is for that reason that excommunication is so devastating. So what does excommunication mean? Well, it's an action taken by the authority of Jesus. It releases one into the domain of Satan. Listen now how Paul describes the matter in the latter part of verse 5. For the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, behind that amazing statement is Paul's absolute assurance that Satan is none other than the unwilling servant of God. Satan may rage against God and against his people. He may seek to destroy us, but in the end, he will only play into God's hands. But what could Paul mean when he speaks about Satan destroying his flesh? Now, some commentators think that it means that Satan will inflict sickness upon that person, kind of like 1 Corinthians 11, when someone takes communion in an unworthy manner, they may get sick and even die. Or some will point to Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, who fell dead before the Lord after they had lied. Now, is Paul saying that excommunication can lead to physical death? Well, there is no doubt that for some people it has. But I want you to notice something in this text. Notice verse 3. When speaking of his physical frame, Paul uses the word body or the Greek word soma. Now, in verse 5, he uses the word sarx or the word flesh. Sarx can refer to the body, but most often it refers to the lower nature, that part of us that tends to rebel against God and seeks our own way. In other words, Paul is saying that the experience of excommunication and the result of living in Satan's domain would make this individual face the consequences of his behavior, and the prayer would be that that person would turn and repent. At least that's the hope. And that's why excommunication can be the act of a loving church with the hope that finally this person can face their own sin and see how devastating it is and run into the arms of a loving Savior. Heavenly Father, I thank you for a plain teaching in Scripture as to what we are to do so that your church would remain holy. Father, I pray, give courage and give conviction to leaders of churches and to members as well so that we might hold each other to the standards that you have set before us, so that we could be the church of Jesus who provides an alternative to this broken culture. Oh, Lord God, I pray, heal your church in this hour. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. John, thanks again for a great teaching on a difficult subject. And join us again tomorrow here on Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Laugh Again with Phil Calloway is celebrating its fifth anniversary in 2019. As a part of our celebrations, we want to invite you to join us for the Laugh Again fifth anniversary cruise aboard the Royal Caribbean Oasis of the Seas. From February 3rd to 10th, join Phil Calloway and friends in the Western Caribbean for a week of laughter, fellowship, and spiritual refreshment like only Phil can offer. Enjoy music and worship with award-winning musical guest Rika Seward and begin the morning with devotions from InDoubt ministry leader Isaac Dagno. Is it time for a family vacation, a getaway with friends, or a much-needed break to a sunny destination? 
We'd love for you to consider taking your next vacation with Laugh Again and Phil Calloway for the trip of a lifetime. For more information, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or check out laughagain.ca. Laugh Again, truth bringing laughter to life.